welcome to our new podcast, Life in the ER, Episode 1, Even Doctors Make Mistakes. You know what? That is so true. As Hannah Montana says, everybody makes mistakes. We may not like to think about it because we put our lives in these people's hands, but nobody's perfect and we just gotta work it. On a more serious note, doctors do get a bad rep when they mess up, but they are humans too. They're capable of human error and no one is able to go through life without accidentally messing up. It's normal. Yeah, like sometimes someone could get towels stuck in their bowels. It happens to the best of us. (laughs) Okay, so maybe we shouldn't be taking this as lightly as we are, because this can cause some serious problems. People's whole lives have been turned around because of this phenomenon of medical malpractice, and serious lawsuits can happen as well. Okay, so let's finally jump into it. The episode is going to go into detail on different types of medical malpractice, such as accidental awareness during surgery, foreign objects, and other medical cases. Our first case discusses anesthetic awareness. Accidental awareness is an explicit recall of general anesthesia and could be spontaneously reported by the patient or detected by direct questioning or promoting. In layman's terms, this means that the patient is able to hear and feel everything going on around them. The patient knows their brain is awake and if they are interviewed after being suspected of awareness, their answers will reveal that they were aware during surgery. One patient recalls the surgery he had on his femur. There was a large hole where they were operating, and he remembers hearing the drill on his bone and feeling the pounding of the nail. There is one particular case where the victim, to this day, still has PTSD. Statistics show that 79% of patients who experience anesthetic awareness long-term were left with intense PTSD. Donna Penner, the woman who had this terrible awareness experience, tells Mosaic that she will have a panic attack just from wearing her turtleneck because it feels like it is suffocating her. Or if she's in the car, she will freak out because she feels trapped, just like she was during surgery. Yeah, and this experience completely uprooted her life. She was put on medical leave from her job because she couldn't function. Actually, this happens a lot more often than people think. Recent studies have shown that around 5 patients, 5% of patients wake up on the operating table. Even though there is evidence that 5% of patients wake up when undergoing surgery, there could be a large percentage that don't remember waking up due to the amnesiac effects of the drugs. It is still up for debate as to whether or not forgetting this event occurred is a good or a bad thing. When being put under for surgery, anesthesiologists don't just use one drug, but a combination of multiple. There are anesthetics that numb the lower half of the body that make you tired, but not to the point where you're completely unaware. Some of this produces complete unconsciousness. Most of the time, patients will also be given muscle relaxers and neuromuscular blockers, which temporarily paralyze the body. A study conducted by the Fifth National Audit Project concluded that anesthetic drugs can directly abolish memory. This means that some patients may experience awareness during surgery, but the combination of drugs used could interfere with their ability to encode a memory or not remember it until years after the incident. When it comes to the anesthetic awareness, there's a huge gray area. It is difficult to determine what is and isn't a result of a malfunction on the anesthesia's part. There are multiple other factors that could be causing the patient to be aware during an operation. For example, a 27-year-old male was put under general anesthesia for a prolapsed intervertebral disc. After the patient was weaned off of the anesthesia, they removed the breathing tube from his throat. Once extubated, he started to scream and shout about how he had been in pain throughout the entire duration of the surgery. He also said that he understood everything and could hear complete conversations between the surgeons and other attendants. After further investigation, it was found that nothing was wrong with the anesthesia, but there had been a leak in the oxygen tank. 
This goes to show that there could be other reasons and explanations behind why a patient experienced pain during the operation. Although substantial progress has been made in understanding awareness about the incidents, consequences, and prevention, lack of gold standard or the definition, detection, and prevention still prevent us from minimizing it. The example above provides a good backup to show how, even though we know what anesthesia awareness is, we don't know enough about it to be able to work on minimizing its effects. To make matters worse, patients, no matter the cause, are left with a feeling of being powerless after experiencing such a traumatic event. That's completely true. Patients who go through this mainly experience a sense of complete hopelessness. They think that they're going to die or that the doctors and the medical staff will never realize that they're in pain. The crazy part of Donna's story, the woman we mentioned earlier, was that she tried desperately to signal to the OR staff that something wasn't right. Donna says, I tried to cry to just to get tears to roll down my cheeks, thinking that they would notice that and notice that something was going on, but I couldn't make tears. She even tried to wiggle her foot slightly so she could signal the nurse nearby. The nurse then put her hand on her foot, but wasn't able to realize that it was a basically a cry for help. The brain is so incredibly complex that a lot of doctors have difficulty trying to prevent this mistake from even occurring. However, they have made some strides in making sure that all syringes are correctly labeled and the drug proportions are correct for the patient's needs. The most renowned practice is the isolated forearm technique, IFT, where the doctor will ask the patient to squeeze their hand if they are feeling anything or if they are still conscious. This is because the brain delays the effect of the paralyzing drug to the arms, that being the most outer part of their body. This means that since the arm is the last to feel the effects of the paralyzing drug, doctors are able to detect a patient's awareness before it's too late. One thing to keep in mind though is that there hasn't been any many studies done on this topic because the phenomenon is so rare. There are still things that doctors have no idea how to control in the medical world, and ideas are constantly changing due to the new innovative technology. Studies like the Fifth National Audit Project and several medical journals are some of the few sources that have concrete information, but even that is just theory or inference. All right, listeners, and that wraps up our anesthetic awareness portion of this episode. For this podcast, we wanted to break up some of the heavier, more intense topics with some fun, lighthearted stories. What better way to do that than have former ER nurses tell some of the crazy stories they have experienced firsthand? We decided to talk to my mom and stepdad to see what kind of crazy cases they have handled. My mom worked in the ER for 12 years, and my stepdad worked in the ER for seven. Here's one of the crazy stories they were excited to share. There was a patient on the trauma step-down unit uh, when I was up there with students, and he had broken both of his legs, and they had to splint it from the outside with uh, metal rods. So he had, like, these uh, rods that came out of both ends of his leg and then a bar that went across, and... That was on both legs, and he decided that he was done being in the hospital. So somehow or another, he escaped from the hospital bed and then combat crawled out of the room, down the hallway, out the door, into the elevators. And all the while, in order to do this, he had to go right past the nurse's station, and someone had to let him out the door because the door only opens if you push a button that's about uh, four feet high on the wall. Mm
Now that we've figured out how people escape from the hospital, courtesy of Camden's parents, we are now going to switch gears to talk about more malpractice suits that can be found in a hospital. So if you think about it, the one thing you don't expect from highly trained medical professionals during surgery is miscounting. However, there are 1,500 cases each year of retained surgical bodies, or RBS. Most of the objects left behind in the body are surgical sponges because doctors use them in cavities of the patient, like their abdomen or pelvis, to reduce bleeding. 80% of these cases are due to the material count being incorrect. This job is actually quite difficult in a lot of cases. The standard procedure of counting the tools is required even in emergency situations. This means that while someone is close to dying in the operating table, the scrub nurses are expected to count the materials before and after the procedure. Patients who experience this phenomenon may be subject to severe pain, which could be mistaken for a tumor depending on where the object is located. In most extreme cases, the object may lead to internal bleeding, which will need additional operations to correct this mistake. The first actual case we will talk about is one where a towel was left where it shouldn't have been. It all started when a man in his early 60s went in for a sigmoid colectomy, which is basically where they remove your colon. This article claims that one month later, the patient required emergency surgery for removal of an unmarked surgical towel that was used in the initial surgery. This patient had a towel stuck in their bowel for an entire month. So, if you were wondering why our introduction was so strange, there's explanation. Anyway, the prosecution filed the case as negligence, claiming that the surgeons failed to check the body cavity before the incision was closed. The defendant, Dr. T, claimed that the nurses had told him the material count was correct. The $775,000 case was returned for the hospital and Dr. T and his staff. Our second and final real-life example of foreign object malpractice is one about a four-inch-long piece of catheter left inside the heart of a young surgical patient in 1986 that was not discovered for more than 20 years. The evidence showed that the doctors who performed the initial surgery at Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York, knew that a piece of the catheter had broken off inside the patient's heart, but the professionals now are unsure as to why they left the catheter behind. There's record of the medical staff attempting to remove the catheter and other tubes for drainage three days after the surgery, and even a nurse's note that it possibly broke off with a portion remaining. They assumed that the doctors left the catheter in the patient's heart because they thought it was harmless or they didn't think the patient was stable enough to go through the process of having it removed. The victim claims that the catheter left inside his body took a serious toll on his health, causing an embolic stroke in 2003 and two ischemic attacks in 2008. The man, Adam Walton, ended up bringing his case to the appellate division panel due to the fact that he believed the catheter was a fixation device, therefore would be eligible for compensation under the confines of an RBS medical lawsuit. However, there is a 10-year limit on these types of cases, and Walton wasn't made aware of his situation until December of 2008. However, there is even a debate on whether his case could be tried as a foreign object due to the size of According to most recent reports, an amicus curiae was filled by the Healthcare Association of New York State to argue against this notion in support of the hospital. The judge in charge of the case had this to say about the situation. Fundamentally, if the facts are alleged, plaintiff left the hospital after an operation with therapeutically useless and potentially dangerous surgical paraphernalia lodged in his body. After hearing these stories and knowing the general idea of what medical malpractice is, we wanted to briefly discuss a general idea of what is to be expected when it comes to the trials for the malpractice suits. 
We found out that in 2001, doctors alone spent $6.3 billion obtaining medical malpractice coverage. Doctors are spending outrageous amounts of money just to protect themselves from cases they know they will face, even if they weren't at fault. No matter whether they did anything wrong or not, the doctors still have to pay for their lawyers along with any other fees needed in order for the trial to take place. The doctors need the medical malpractice coverage as a safety precaution, and so they won't be paying for everything out of pocket. This is their way of saving themselves extreme financial problems if they do happen to have a malpractice case filed against them. As shown by the stories above, sometimes the doctors lose the cases and sometimes they win them. Usually if they lose, they wind up having to pay a few hundred thousand dollars to the person who filed the suit. Now I know this is a heavy topic, so we're going to light the air again with another crazy ER story. This guy was working in a factory and had on a thick coat and they got caught in a piece of the uh, machinery and it ripped his arm off of his body. Um, I mean, it was like just barely hanging on by a little bit of skin and some tissue. Um, it was barely hanging on, but it was still uh, technically attached. And um, so anyway, we had to take him over to the CT scanner um, to see if anything was else was damaged inside, organs-wise. And one of the positions you have to have your arms over your head on the CT scanner, I mean, for the image. And the CT tech went to put this guy's arms over his head and then tape them, and his whole arm fell off. And like this girl, all the color left her face, arm just fell off in the floor. Like, I mean, you would have thought she saw a ghost. It was absolutely mm -hmm. hilarious. But we, had a, we went in and just taped his arm on and got scans and then he went to the operating room. Oh my gosh, that one was crazy. Well, this next segment of the episode is mainly focused on the mishmash of cases. The random, weird, and really sort of awful ones that don't really have a category. From an internist saying, of course you don't need to see a cardiologist for heart pain, to being discharged the day after surgery, this segment has it all. So this story is about a 48-year-old woman who went into the hospital because she had pain in her lower abdomen. She was given multiple different tests and one revealed a left pelvic inflammation along with an ovarian problem. After 12 days in the hospital and finding out about the inflammation and ovarian issue, she was discharged only to return to the emergency department the next day. I can't believe they let her leave so early and if I were her, I would have forced them to let me stay. Then her first sign that something wasn't right should have been that she had to go back to the emergency department the day after being discharged for pain, shortness of breath, and diaphoresis. Once again, they couldn't find anything else wrong, so she was discharged with new instructions for how much pain medicine she needed. After her second discharge, she had to return to the hospital, once again, because she was having trouble breathing. She was hooked to an oxygen tank and took, to, took the original doctor to court for negligence and misdiagnosis, claiming that had she been diagnosed correctly the first time, she wouldn't be on an oxygen tank. 
In the end, the court ruled against her and in favor of the doctor, saying that the patient had health problems that resulted in the inability to diagnose her accurately. In this next one, a man sees an internist for heart problems five times in the span of two years. His family had a history of coronary heart disease, while he had a personal history of gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD. He complains of chest pain, which worries his wife, so they ask if they should see a cardiologist. The internist said that they didn't need to worry, that his symptoms were caused by his GERD. Eight months later, the man ends up dying trying to operate a snowblower. I mean, just imagine, you're worried and confused that you're having these symptoms of heart issues, which runs in the family, and then the doctor tells you you have nothing to worry about. Then you die eight months later. It's like a whole roller coaster of emotions. And in this situation, the internist wasn't even able to detect his cause of death? Yes, that's exactly what happened. The man died from an arrhythmia, or an irregular heartbeat, that was caused by what turned out to be coronary heart disease. During the case, the plaintiff later revealed that the man had almost total blockage in both right and left coronary arteries for almost two years prior to his death. The plaintiff argued that if the man had gotten a stress test done, the disease would have been detected and he would have survived. The doctor, who was the defendant in the lawsuit, claimed that the GERD made the heart disease undetectable. Nonetheless, it was never proven that the blockage existed at the time of the man's last appointment. According to the recent reports, the case was returned at a net worth of $1,618,200. So, just to reflect a little, you always hear that a doctor's worst fear is not being able to save someone, but in this case, you can't just say there was nothing else you could do because, well, there was. And so, with this uplifting ending, that wraps up episode one of Life in the ER, Even Doctors Make Mistakes. We hope everyone found this topic as interesting as we did and wanted to thank everyone for sticking around to listen. See you in episode two, coming soon to the podcasting platform near you.